So, regaining meaningful membership. So in your various churches that are represented here, would you say that your membership is meaningful or is this a challenge or a problem in your sort of circles that you've been in, brothers? Yes, I think it's a challenge in evangelicalism in general, not just Baptist life, Presbyterian life. Uh, in the 20th century, in most Protestant churches, there was a lower view of the significance of membership in a local church than in the 19th century for a whole variety of reasons. And so I think everywhere where there is a uh, resurgence of robust biblical Christianity, alongside of that, there's going to be a corresponding sense of the importance of what it means to be a member of a local body. So if you're a Presbyterian pastor, chances are you've got lots of work to do in your congregation on raising uh, their estimation of the importance of, of church membership. Speaking of Presbyterians, you sent me a wonderful quotation one time from Thornwell on the, the want of numbers uh, needing to unsecularize the church. Right. Can you, with your electronic marvelness, call up that <laughs> quote somehow? I'll probably find it online because you quote it uh, in several well, places. Well, it'd be It'll great thing to read name. out. Yeah. If anybody I'll, thinks I'll, they I'll have it, up during the it's next a break. wonderful yeah. quotation. But the reason, the reason I think of it is because so often the way membership is important these days is for literally the total number of members. Right. And that sadly replaced the sort of weightier kind of importance of membership that we've been talking about. Yeah. Alistair? Oh, well, uh, um, yeah, I think that uh, this was just a, a solid reminder to me of the importance of what we endeavor to do and um, an indication of how uh, we shouldn't assume too much that we constantly have to be reviewing the way in which we do things. And just because we've done them in that way for a long time doesn't necessarily mean that we have had done so to the degree of success that we might wish for. And um, so, yeah, I, th I, I think, uh, you know, I inherited a church that was pretty loose on this kind of thing. And then th th in reaction to that, then they introduced a, a three-month membership process that, you know, kind of if you missed a week, you had to start at the beginning again. It was, a, it was virtually impossible to become a member. And... Um, it was it was highly successful at preventing membership. <laughs> uh, when I suggested that we might be able to make it uh, six weeks or four weeks, uh, the rigorists among us thought that that was an an obvious declension, and uh, and I tried to explain to them that uh, it might be possible to convey the same thing, you know, in a different way. And and so we've settled now. I think we have a month of Sundays when we, when we do that and our elders teach it and seek to reinforce the very things you were pointing out. Um, but again, this was a solid reminder. Very helpful. I'm a lifelong Southern Baptist. I uh, walk what a the aisle as a... Uh, now, Danny, I think you're the only lifelong Southern Baptist I, up here I, on this panel. I think I am. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. Is that okay? I mean, is it... How does it feel? <laughs> I guess your life's not over yet. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel very good right no, now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it looks so, to me like you're fading away, man. Yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. We're losing you. Well, I'm trying to get back in. Um, I walked the aisle as a 10-year-old boy. Um, after having met with the pastor uh, on a Thursday night, which... I have no memory of what happened because it was one of those terrifying experiences of my life. 
and uh, because he always wore a dark suit, a tie, had black rim glasses, and I was just literally terrified of him. And so I walked the aisle. Um, Wait, was this your job interview at Southern? Ben Hill Baptist Church in uh, <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia. So, uh, and um, I stood on the front row. Miss Askew came over, gave me a card. Uh, we filled it out. She brought me back up. They voted on me. I was in. And I would be willing to wager that was the experience of many of the brethren and sistren that happened to be here this afternoon. And I think that's atrocious. And uh, it is uh, deeply problematic. And it certainly did not bring even into my mind. And I, I have no doubt of my authentic conversion. That I do not have any doubt of. But I didn't really understand at all the weightiness of being a part of that particular church. I just didn't. So I'm very encouraged, though I still think the vast majority of the churches in our convention, there are 45,000 of them, still pretty much practice it the same way I just described. I'm grateful that we are moving away from that. And I'm not opposed, you know me, I'm not opposed to having a come forward invitation. I'm not. But I am opposed to not dealing with people well. And we talked about this a moment ago on the break. The only area where Southern Baptists are continuing to baptize numbers with any significance are four, five, and six-year-olds. And that also means that our baptismal numbers are much worse than we think because a large number are rebaptisms of people that become absolutely convinced they were not converted, they did not understand the gospel, they came forward for a multitude of reasons none of which was related to their sense of sinfulness and need for Christ. And at that point in time in their life, they are converted, they're authentically baptized, and therefore some of our, a lot of our numbers are, are rebaptisms, a lot. And so this is a desperate need. I think we're making gains, but we still have a long, a lot of territory to regain. And I think, Alistair, sounds a very necessary warning we don't want to make it so hard to get in that virtually no one can, but we want to make sure we take it very seriously. And I, I want to reaffirm, and I'll say this tomorrow, but now more quickly, if I were starting a church from scratch, we absolutely would have both a church covenant uh, and a, a, a requirement for membership, a confession of faith. They would sign off on a confession of faith and uh, also on a, uh, uh, a covenant or they can attend forever. Great. They're not going to be a member. And Mark, given what's happening in our culture with certain issues related to gender, this is, whether you want to do it or not, just out of pure pragmatic concerns for your survival, you better do this. You better do, but you ought to be doing it anyway because it's biblical. Speaking of starting a church, you're about to be, Lord willing, planting a new congregation. What are you planning to do to make membership meaningful just from the very beginning? Yeah, I think, you know, starting with the organizing documents, covenant, um, statement of faith, which are framing out uh, what we believe and what we intend to uphold as a, a summary of the Bible's statement of truth uh, and how we agree to live together as a congregation, uh, membership class, uh, the, the same kinds of nuts and bolts you've been talking about here. And as I was listening to the talk, um, I, I was so thankful for it because you were really pressing us into some basics, and it was a, a good reminder of um, just how, how profound and helpful basics can be. 
and how often we forget them. I mean, somebody ought to start a conference, call it the Basics Conference or something yeah. like that. You know, that'd be, that'd be good. <laughs> Amen. It, it is a good one. Great idea. <laughs> Ligon, when Baptists figure out that Presbyterians mean by the Lord's Supper what we mean by baptism in some ways, I mean, you, you mean to have regenerate people coming to the Lord's Supper. So um, do you have all the same pressures in PCA world about lowering age yeah. of communion? Yeah, that we I, have lowering age of baptism? We do. I was telling Danny before the break that the, what, what you're talking about in the declining age of, of of what's called believer's baptism, which, which gets perilously close to infant baptism, um, we have um, we have that phenomenon with professions of faith, uh, with with the age dropping, and with people wanting uh, you know very very young children to make a quote unquote profession of faith in coming. So, do you have any faith. idea? Is it common in a Presbyterian church that's preaching the gospel in 1900? If I'm a 12 year old, I, I take the Lord's Supper. It, it, historically, the age of communion in Baptist and Presbyterian churches in 1900 would have been about the same ages. So more like 18. 14 to 18 okay. would have been the typical range. So if I'm an 8-year-old at First Pres Jackson, do I take the Lord's Supper? No. What if I'm saved? Well, you have to be able to answer articulately the I'm five right. questions. I'm right. I answered membership. the five questions. <laughs> <laughs> You have to have been able to have convinced the elders that you understand the question. And, and I just can't do that if I'm eight. Yeah, we wouldn't encourage it. Yeah. But I know you didn't. You discouraged it, but still yeah. I was persistent. <laughs> so, so did I make it through? It's, it's hard no, to envision you didn't. the scenario you didn't make it with marketing yeah. persistent. You can't even <laughs> fathom that. I didn't make it through. No. What if I'm ten? You're getting closer, but still. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, see, see, I, I want to I jump into this. Because I think it's so relevant and uh, it is so essential for all of these who are pastors of churches. All right. We recognize the real danger of becoming um, guilty of infant baptism. All right. So we're going to push back the other way. There was no irony in that statement. (laughs) (laughs) All eyes this direction. We know we love our Presbyterian brethren. Absolutely. So how far do we push back? What does Capitol Hill do? We deliberately don't have an age. People all the time will, will think we have an age. We deliberately have never written down an age. Okay. Um, 18 is the sort of normal breaking point just because that's when you take on responsibilities outside your home. But we've often baptized people, you know, in their teenagers before then. It's just a case by and case. And they have full membership privileges. Full membership. The only, so, thing, the only thing we try to say, so like we've got a 15-year-old coming up soon, I think. The only thing we try to, for baptism, the only thing we try to make clear is that that the, the, the child or the adult, the person, and their parents understand. And in this case, she's come from a, it, it's an interesting testimony. Her father's not a believer. Her mother is a believer. Uh, they all come from a Muslim background. Um, but we want to make sure that they understand that she will be under, the, the 15-year-old will be under the discipline of the church so that, you know, we won't be foolish in how we work with the parents. But if, if they are allowing and encouraging her, and she is mature enough, and she certainly seems to be, take on this responsibility of church membership, that will mean that the church inevitably would have a, an involvement with her should she be an unrepentant sin that would not be the case if she were simply the child in a Christian home where the parents were members of our church. Or we, or we had Darren coming from an inner city situation. His parents weren't believers or a part of the church, and he had been discipled by a member of our church, came on his own. So he was mid-teens, I think. So can I push back? 
course, sure. Yeah. You have these folks that have come out, and with good reason, say, well, in the Scriptures, someone professes Christ, they're baptized immediately. There's no instance in Scripture where there is this delay between confession of faith in Christ. Of course, now we also have to acknowledge, and there's a lot of arguments from silence here, but I'm just being the angel's advocate for a moment, that uh, <laughs> you just don't see any separation at all of anyone from their confession of faith and their baptism. They happen immediately. So are we being unbiblical by delaying? I even have a few friends, and I'm not advocating this, that will separate baptism from membership and they will baptize immediately but they will not allow into membership until they've gone through some type of membership process and you know i'm just because i'm not a pastor I'm, I'm, I'm in submission to the leadership of my church but i'm interested in this because i want to be sound ecclesiologically plus i have this responsibility of all these three thousand students so talk to me brothers you you raise the you raise the topic. Uh, the, what, what what do they do at the country club? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm going to let that one pass. Um, well, as the senior member of the group, you know, I should at least say something. Um, you know, our place is fairly chaotic, to, be t- to tell you the truth, in that um, we have arbitrarily said the bar mitzvah age gives us some kind of indication within Hebrew life of uh, and, and the unfolding purpose of God, this transition. And so we have just told our people that we certainly won't baptize anyone under that age. So... We're talking about 13 years of age. It would be the, the threshold. <clears throat> we, do not, we do not tie baptism to membership directly in the way that uh, we're thinking about here. And so we don't have the benefit or the problem, if you like, of what is being done there. So let's say a 14-year-old boy or girl um, is baptized upon a genuine profession of faith they're still really in local apparentus under the jurisdiction of their parents until such times as they would actually go through our membership class. But we've had, you know, we've had uh, uh, circumstances in my tenure when um, you could become uh, a member of the church, uh, you know, with, without being baptized. And um, so we've, you know, we've we've got we've gone all over the houses on it. I think we're about as in solid a position as we are now. But we one of the changes that we that we made, um, and I was the one who said, no, no, you have to have baptism. And so I I I plugged for baptism and believers' baptism upon profession of faith. As soon as I got that secured in the church, then and and not just by mandate or acquiescence but by a kind of deep-seated conviction, then <clears throat> I determined that the, I wanted the church to have an open membership in relationship to baptism. So that, for example, if Ligon were to come with his wife and relocate to our area, that we could admit him into membership despite the fact that he had been baptized in, in infancy uh, upon his profession of faith and that he could therefore serve in our church um, as an elder or as, or as a leader. 
Um, the irony for me was that many of the people who were opposed to me the first time around in proposing the, the vital importance of baptism tied to membership then were the same people who opposed me when I tried to open the door back up again. But for our church, it, it, is, a, it is a legitimacy on our part to be able to do as we do because we're not violating... Uh, we might be violating Scripture, but we're not violating any kind of denominational code or structure that we have professed an adherence to. So we really are, you know, I think Second Baptist uh, Houston is called the Fellowship of Excitement. I think ours would be called the Fellowship of Chaos, you know, uh, as it, because we just navigate our way through that. And I don't believe that, we, that we're doing so in any way that is um, cavalier or because we're trying to accommodate things. It really is just as we navigate our way along. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it's honest. But you, you asked Mark, right? I asked all of you. Well, I looked at him, but I meant for I all of the brothers to participate. I'd be delighted to know what you think. Pay, hey, pay attention, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I, I need to. Yeah. <laughs> I think when you do spontaneous baptism, it begins to individualize the baptism. It pulls it away from the church. It's more on the subjective, immediate person's profession. There's no uh, concern necessarily. There's not really much time for concern to check into their understanding so when you go to the biblical examples, we certainly do have some examples of immediate baptism. Uh, Acts 2. Acts 8. I'd say eight. all of them in Acts are immediate. Yeah, some of them are not clear. I'm not sure well, yeah. how long. And again, you've got their recording of history. But you've also got the baptism of entire households. Yes, whatever that meant. All of those who believe right. and rejoice. That's right. Ligon no, knows no, what it meant. That's right. Yeah. I guess I would say. A couple and see, of if, 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 the, if, the, if the whole household of Ligons right now got preached to, they could all believe and rejoice. I'd baptize all of them. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They receive the word gladly. Yeah. Let, Thank let, you. Let me try a couple of things on that. Number one, are those historical narratives intended to be normative for those well, purposes? I said they're descriptive that, be, more than prescriptive. Right. I acknowledge that. The, the second thing I would say is uh, to recognize that in a first-century context. To step out for Christ would have been a terribly countercultural thing to do and to put oneself at risk. Also, at that point in history, you wouldn't have had the same level of false Jesuses out there to clarify. So somebody comes forward now, and I've got to ask the question, is it, is it the Mormon Jesus or the Jehovah's Witness Jesus or the Muslim Jesus? Which Jesus are you saying you believe in? I've got to have that conversation in a way and acts. I don't think they would have. So that by the time you get to the Jonina epistles, John in you know, chapter 4 says, test the spirits because not all are at this point, even you know, a few years later, a few decades later, are preaching the same Jesus. So it seems to slow things down even by the time you get to the end of the epistles. Yeah, I think there are other ways to deal with, regardless of what somebody ends up thinking, regardless of what you end up thinking about age of baptism or how quickly you baptize, there might be other things that you could do to help restore uh, the meaningfulness and the seriousness of church membership in a way that would serve your congregation. Well, and I could not imagine even those that take that and I actually don't take that position. I see the wisdom in making sure someone understands the gospel and is embracing the gospel. 
So I, I would push back on them as well and say, listen, regardless of how quickly you do it afterwards, you've got to be sure that they understand the gospel. Jonathan's point is well taken, and it really comes back to what you said this morning, which I love. The first interview for church membership took place at Caesarea Philippi when you asked, uh, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? You've got to make sure that they have that basic understanding of the gospel. And that's going to take some time now. So I can do it in five minutes. Well, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure that it was a five-minute conversation that uh, the that Philip had with the eunuch. I'm quite sure it was much longer than that. We're getting the summary of it all the way through. So, again, I just recognize those who make that argument certainly have grounds for making it. I want us to be able to think through, well, how do we not push back so much, but try to say, okay, let's think through this well. Because bottom line, we all agree. We want to deal with people responsibly. And I, I will just go ahead and jump into this one. I think this is one of the real problems with what some of the evangelical brethren are doing out there with these spontaneous baptisms. I think they're highly, highly, highly irresponsible. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. That's what I think. Wow. Glad I wasn't doing that. Uh, uh, can, can, can we just, can we just uh, make sure that... Uh, Given what uh, was said earlier about this, uh, you know, the what and the who and doing our best with all of that, at the end of the day, we're agreed, I take it, that we baptize upon a person's profession of faith and not upon the assurance of their salvation. I don't think we have the authority to refuse, in a sense. So I think of Peter in Acts 10, and he, he sees the Holy Spirit has come upon Cornelius in the household, and he says... Who are we to keep these people from being baptized? So, yeah, I would agree right. with that entirely. And plus Simon the magician was baptized. And he was, yeah, he clearly didn't have, he, he hadn't clear. been through the membership class, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Lincoln, would you agree with that as far as profession for, for admission to the Lord's Supper? Um, the um, let me let me actually go back to the spontaneous baptism question and pick up on what Jonathan said. Um, typically, Presbyterians and Baptists view Acts and the New Testament teaching on church government as prescriptive, not merely descriptive. Whereas Anglicans will typically view, especially the Book of Acts, as merely descriptive and therefore the church is free to establish government and church practice insofar as wisdom and prudence directs. Uh, that does not mean that we don't think that there are things that are peculiar to redemptive history going on in the book of Acts that you want to be careful about. And I would think that Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch is one of those examples. And in a sense, it's much more akin to the mission field and an evangelist out on the mission field where the church has not yet been established and he's been vested with the authority of the sending church to go and establish a church. It's really, that's the better parallel for that particular situation. But even in that setting, there is this in-depth study of Isaiah 53 so that a who do you say that I am can be definitively given. So there is discipleship that we are getting a summation of in that setting. And I want to I reiterate what Jonathan said. Absolutely true. The enormous cost uh, that those early Jewish Christians would have borne by being baptized into the name of Jesus Christ is akin to 
the threat that our Muslim uh, convert brothers and sisters experience in the world today. In some places, to be baptized as a Muslim, to come to faith in Christ, to be baptized into Christ is a death warrant. And that is the kind of Rubicon that that Jewish people converting to Christ and being baptized would have faced in that context. And so Jonathan's absolutely right. There would have been, whereas in our setting, there, there might be a great deal of public affirmation for some folks um, in, in this spontaneous baptism kind of thing. That would have been the exact opposite socially and familially in that context. It would have come with enormous personal cost relationally in their own social networks. So you're saying there's a built-in break yeah, there's a built on in, who's yeah, going to yeah. be coming forward. Yeah. May I ask you just a very simple, strange question? When you baptize people at Capitol, do the people in the congregation applaud? Hmm. Um, I don't, but in the last few years they've started to, and I haven't stopped them. You haven't stopped them? Hmm. Okay. You'd stop them? How about yeah. It? yeah. I don't like it. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, tell us about that, Alistair. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things that you fight in a context like ours is, is, or you have to fight for, is some kind of element of gravitas, right. some kind of notion of the numinous, right. some kind of otherworldliness that is this is this is not somebody's high school graduation here you know and and so i recognize on the one hand the spontane spontaneity of it and the the joy of it but there's something inside of me it's partly just my scottish roots that that jars against it but i feel the same way about the culture of applause in the entire church and um and so it it, it it's kind of wrapped up with that, but I was just interested. I think in our church, the applause has only begun in the last few years, and there's no applause at anything else. Um, I would say our services have a sense of gravity about them, and that there is, my concern isn't, isn't just the sort of gravity, it's more, well, or it's particularly the solemnity of it in the sense that you're now being inducted into the revolution. Mm. You, you are revolting against the prince of the power of the air. You are being initiated into the revolutionary army. Mm -hmm. And it is a difficult assignment. And a kind of innocent high-fiving of each other mm. is like, ah, well, no, I, I appreciate the joy. That's why I don't want to, I like, well, there's also now applause at weddings in a way there wasn't yeah. before. Right. You know, when, when there's the final pronouncement is made. Yep. I've decided myself not to stop that because I just have to allow, different cultures are different. Right. And, you know, we weren't all born in, you know, when I was where I was. You, yeah, but you see it, you see it right. Uh, for example, if we're going to talk about this, this, uh, this baptismal pool is a grave yeah. into which this person is entering, at least symbolically, and they're buried with Christ, and they're raised with Him. So there's a tremendous joy, I suppose, in the picture of resurrection. Mm -hmm. But you've got the same thing, actually, in uh, contemporary funerals in so many churches. Where we haven't had applause there, there yet. No, but it's not just applause. It's it's uh, it's a uh, lot of humor. It's 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 like this hasn't really happened. Mm -hmm. This isn't really sad. This is actually we're going to show tr we're going to show slides of of old Joe when he you know really looked fabulous, uh, but actually he doesn't look fabulous right now. Mm -hmm. 
And apart from the resurrection, he'll never look fabulous again. And this is horribly sad. And why are we pretending otherwise? Mm -hmm. But again, that's just... I'm just interested. More Scottish cheer. It's more Scottish, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that, brother. <laughs> Before the break, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that'll be all of our conversation for now. Can I, tell, can I just give you one Scottish thing if you haven't heard this? And the, Scottish, the Scottish minister is preaching, and he's preaching on hell. And he's, he's going crazy on it. And he said there will be lightning and fire, and there will be, there will be devastation, and there will be gnashing of teeth. And a lady, two rows from the front, said, I don't have any teeth. <laughs> and he says, teeth will be provided. <laughs> Thank you, what, what, Alistair. What, what were you... <laughs> You have helped to Where reinvigorate the gravity. Kind of. <laughs>